This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Robin Gant, CFO of Northwest Pipe Company, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 552. get it right, but, but we're, we always have a thoughtful, sophisticated model behind the scenes that's attempting to predict what's going to happen. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Tim Zhu, CFO of the Boston Red Sox. Back in the early 2000s, Larry Lucchino, at the time CEO of the Boston Red Sox, received an email from an 8th grade math teacher. The teacher expressed interest in spending his summer break as an unpaid intern for the Boston Major League team. Fifteen years later, that unpaid intern is the CFO of the Red Sox. The story of Tim Zhu begins after this. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends all with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. Hello, we're speaking to Tim Zhu, CFO of the Boston Red Sox. Tim, welcome. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Tim, uh, we've been looking forward to this one. Such a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk to someone, a uh, finance leader inside a, a major league team like the Red Sox. Uh, we always begin, however, in the same spot we always do, which is to ask you to look back for us, Tim. Tell us a little bit about yourself and those experiences you feel prepared you for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind? Yeah, well, you know, I've had a unique career journey to my current position. Um, you know, I think I like a lot of people bounce around a little bit in the earlier part of my career, um, dating back to, to college. I actually studied mechanical engineering at MIT. Um, my, my favorite part or my proudest moment at MIT was I won a robotics design contest um, as an engineer. There's an annual contest where all the engineers uh, have this you know, contest to design a robot, and I was fortunate enough to win that. And at the time, maybe thought I was going to be, you know, an engineer. Um, turned out when I graduated, I worked at Bain & Company as a management consultant for a couple years. Those were probably the two most formative years of my y early professional 
experience, just learning how Bain approached business problems. You know, Bain uses use data to to answer some of the problems, but really just uh, thinking through, you know, making businesses more efficient. And, and those years were really valuable. Um, I did a career 180 and went and taught eighth grade math for four years in the Boston public school system. So I sort of you know, left Bain, went and taught eighth grade math uh, for four years, coached the after school basketball program, enjoyed that time, but but realized that probably wasn't for me. And I got lucky. One of the benefits of teaching is you have the summers off. And I, uh, you know, thought between my third and fourth year teaching, how cool would it be to work for the Boston Red Sox as an unpaid intern? And um, and I emailed the then CEO, Larry Lucchino, and um, I guessed it's his email address, in fact, at lluchino at redsox.com. And Long story short, or long story long at this point, um, he wrote me back. I was shocked and um, offered me an unpaid internship. And that sort of led me to the Red Sox um, and in the summer of 2003, and I've been here ever since. Now, was it a, a traditional finance role you jumped into, or what was it exactly? Yeah, no, so my— It was an internship, I think you Yeah, so, you know, my, 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 even my career here at the Red Sox has evolved quite a bit. Um, and, I, and, again, I don't have a unique—I don't have the, a standard finance background. You know, I don't actually have my CPA, believe it or not, sort of a, a secret, you know, a not well-kept secret around here. Um, uh, I had more—I was always a data guy. So, you know, my first job at the Red Sox was— was business analyst, and I'd always been, you know, I'd always loved numbers. I was on the math team, you know, back in back in high school, and always really loved numbers. And so I'd always really been focused on use the use of data. But at at, at the Red Sox when I started in 2003, business analyst was my first title. And for the first 10 or 12 years of my of my career, um, you know, I was really focused on using data to help make business decisions, uh, you know, make our business more efficient. Um, I was when when Sam Kennedy, the current president and CEO, took over for Larry Lucchino in the fall of 2015. He put me in charge of the finance department, um, and so that's when my role transitioned from from sort of a more business analytics role to more finance. Um, and I've been in charge of finance for the last really uh, four years, 16, 17, 18, 19. I remember joking with Sam at the time when he when he actually brought me the idea. He said, "I think I want to put you in charge of the." finance department and I said well Sam I'm, I'm not an accountant <laughs> I said, that's perfect he's like I, he's like I don't you know I said like, I need you to translate the numbers for me put them in put them in a format that I can understand you know be a resource for me get me the information I need you can rely on your team your core you know those folks that have the accounting background to, to take care of the details um, you, sh you I want you to lead them I want you to be strategic I want you to manage them but you know it was it was a unique um, transition because I was a little bit hesitant to be honest at, at first, you know, um, when, when Sam brought the idea to me. But it's really worked out great. The last four years have been incredible. We'd like to uh, talk to you some more about your career uh, during the mentoring round. You had such an interesting early chapter, formative chapter, where uh, four years in a public school system as a teacher, really, that's an unusual chapter, certainly for a finance leader to include. But we'll circle back with you on that. And right now, let's find out about this business. I somehow think uh, how a major league team generates revenues today might be quite different from what many of us might guess. Uh, you know, is it attendance numbers? Is uh, the television landscape has changed so much? I'm not sure the nature of this business. So we, uh, we're looking forward to asking you this question. Tell us about the Boston Red Sox and the offerings its fans can't seem to get enough of today. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that we are incredibly fortunate to have 
such a loyal, passionate fan base that supports the team year in and year out. We never take it for granted. I mean, you know, we know our attendance is always strong. We've had, luckily, we've had mostly success in our 17 or 18 years um, since I've been here. But we've had a few, you know, down years, and, and even in those years, the fans supported us. Um, you know, and at, at our core, we're in the entertainment business. I mean, you know, our, our product is, is really the experience of Fenway Park, primarily. Um, and we want to make sure that our fans are getting the best possible experience at Fenway, both when they come to Fenway in person, but to your point, whether they're watching the game on television. You know, that starts with a competitive team. So, of course, you know, number one is making sure that we invest in the baseball side of the business and player payroll and in, in the infrastructure that supports that, making sure that we can put on the best possible team on the field. But it's just as important just as important is that experience off the field, you know, staffing, ushers, ticket takers, security, game day operations staff, you know, what what it what it you know, the food quality, all those different things we focus really um, quite a bit on to make sure that, that when people give us their hard earned money when they come to Fenway Park, that they leave with a smile on their face and that they've had a great time. So uh, I would love to know this. What are the, you know, those uh, top of mind metrics that you're paying close attention to uh, in a ballpark? We can only guess, uh, but wh what would you tell us? Yeah, I mean, you know, ticket sales is, is, is certainly most important. You know, t ticket revenue is, is roughly 50% of our revenue. So, so number one is, is, is selling tickets to Fenway Park. I, you know, we actually use a software called Tableau where I have an app on my phone, and, and we have all sorts of reports available. But there's a report that shows the tickets sold for every game compared to budget. And I check that report, you know, two or three times a day. It's funny, some of the IT guys, because will, will they see when I check it, they get a little, you know, they say, so what were you doing at 2 in the morning looking at the demo <laughs> report? And, you know, so um, 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 that's probably number one, is just making sure that our ticket sales are, you know, in line with our expectations for the individual games. And when they're not, we can have our marketing and ticketing folks, you know, focus in on a game make sure that they initiate some programs that might help a game along that, that might be struggling. Um, but, but ticketing is number one. Um, you know, and the other ways that, that we generate revenue, of course, you know, we're selling you know, concessions, so food and beverage at Fenway Park, hot dogs, beers, et cetera. Uh, sponsorship, we have, a, we have an incredible uh, loyal sponsorship base that, that, that supports the Red Sox. Um, and, and we have a great team that's, that's continuing to reach out and find unique creative partnerships on the sponsorship side. Um, t TV, uh, TV rights, as, as you noted, you know, we do get uh, rights fee payments from, from Nesson, our local broadcast partner, and, and our radio partner, WEI. But we also get uh, payments from the league that, that they, you know, because the league generates revenue from their national deals with ESPN and Fox and CBS um, and, and et cetera. So those are really the core ones. We, we start more recently, we've expanded our use of Fenway Park um, for non-baseball games. When we got here in 2003, we, we, there had never been a concert at Fenway Park. Um, and since 2003, we've had 75 major concerts um, that have generated over $50 million of revenue, in addition to high school football, college football, you know, winter classic, ice, outdoor ice hockey, ski jumping, all sorts of things that we've used Fenway for. And that's been a really great growth opportunity for us, the use of Fenway, you know, when it's not, when it's not hosting a baseball game. And I, I love the example you gave of looking at the uh, – the update, visual numbers, uh, accessible numbers. Is that part of what uh, finance is striving to do is bring those numbers so they're more visible for whether it's the finance team or other members of the, of the organization as well, senior members? Yeah, well, there's no question that we've had a focus on providing information both to my boss, Sam Kennedy, a president and CEO, but also ownership, John Henry, Tom Warner, and you know, Mike Gordon and others. 
Um, and, and we have so many different Tableau reports. You know, our, our business analytics team has really used that software to really, pr you know, we have a report that shows our game day staffing labor compared to budget that the folks that manage that can look at. We have various ticket sales reports. We have heat maps that show Fenway Park and show the areas of the park that are unsold in red and the areas that are sold in green. And you can see, you know, you can hi hone in on the, on the different areas. And, and, and so there's really, a w visual is certainly the right answer, the right word. You know, we try to put things in a format that is easy to digest. You know, it's not a massive spreadsheet with, you know, 10,000 numbers. It's, you know, we try to use visuals, we use maps, we use heat uh, and coloring. Um, and that is really the goal. You know, Sam Kennedy, as, as I've mentioned his name a few times, you know, he, he's a tremendous president and CEO. He's done a tremendous job here. And, but, you know, he's very busy. He's, he's pulled in a hundred different directions each day. And he needs the information to be presented in a manner that, that is, you know, he can get it quickly, he understands it. And, and it's sort of, you know, that's my job, to, to put it in a format that, that allows him to, to, to make the key decisions. And that's definitely sort of part of uh, what I feel like I've done uh, in this role. Now, you mentioned providing information to your boss and to the board and to others. Uh, is that something that's always been a priority for you in the different roles that perhaps you've had there? Yeah, you know, I've, as I said before, I've always been a numbers guy, and I've always felt like providing people with information that allows them to do their job better in a concise, you know, way that they can understand it has always been a priority of mine ever since day one as I started as an unpaid intern. Now, my job has evolved here since I've been here. I started on the business analytics side and oversaw the business analytics department. In fall of 2015, I was placed in, in charge of the finance department. And then in the beginning of 2018, I was actually uh, expanded my responsibilities to, to be in charge of our IT and technology department. So now that those three areas, business analytics, finance, and technology, are all under one roof and they're under my purview, it's, a, it's enabled me to really focus on which technologies are the best, how to, how to, how to use that technology to, to, to get the information in the format that is, that is most accessible, and then how to serve that up to you know, senior management to make sure that they can make the decisions. Um, so it's, it's the, the, you know, again, I've been lucky that I've been able to oversee all of those areas and, and work with the people in those departments to, to achieve those goals. Now, I'm curious, did you, uh, we, we've been speaking to finance leaders about different dashboards that they've uh, configured, perhaps, you know, here's a dashboard, we share this with the board members, here's a dashboard, we share this with the senior managers or the sales team. Is it a similar approach or, or no? Yeah, it's definitely a similar approach. I mean, we have, as I said earlier, we have different dashboards designed for different needs. And, and the managers, you know, my peers, our head of ticketing, our head of sponsorship, our head of marketing, the best part about the collaboration is they know that they can request information. They can come to me or my team and say, hey, I would love to have something that looks like this. Can you guys put this together? And then we go off and we work on it and our, and our programmers, because we have in-house programmers, um, we'll, we, you know, we'll use the software to, uh, to, to create what they need. And there's a, there's a really great collaborative spirit where there's a back and forth where they say, okay, that's not exactly what I wanted, but that's close, you know, can we tweak this? And, and all of my peers, you know, the various people that run the different lines of business, know that they can come to our department and, and get, what they, get the information they want in a format that serves them best. I'm curious if there's a part, and there may not be, but is there a part of the organization that you believe you've put numbers uh, top of mind with, or perhaps they, they just weren't informed before and you've made the effort to 
get the information out there to enlighten them or to make them understand why certain numbers or certain metrics were uh, so so critical to understand. Once enlightened, uh, people's behaviors changed. Or once enlightened, they find greater reason to collaborate with one another sometimes. Is there a instance of that and again i off the top of your head it might not come up with one but i'm just gonna well i mean i think i think that the, the obvious answer is, is ticketing and, it, and, it, and it's not to suggest that our heads of ticketing and our ticketing department didn't focus on numbers but the way that we've that our my department has helped change their focus on numbers has evolved over over years so they've always been able to track ticket sales they've always been able to run their own reports for you know current sales for certain games um, but, for example, a couple years ago, or I think it was last year, my department introduced this daily email that forecasted the ticket sales for the next seven games. So they, they, didn't, they didn't do forecasts as much in the past. You know, they sort of had, hey, I've sold this much, but how much am I going to sell? And we, we have a lot of different model, you know, different um, inputs to our model that allow you to say, okay, this game's struggling. You know, we're 5,000 tickets away from budget today. And you know, even for the, the sales that we project, we're going to end up 3,000 tickets away from budget uh, by the game. So we need to do something to help this game. So you know, one thing that my department has helped layer on top is, is sort of this idea of projections. We run a model where we predict the intent, the renewal rate, the projected renewal rate for every season ticket holder, you know, based on their use of tickets and a lot, lot of other inputs, so that we know, you know, which accounts we feel like are more likely to renew versus not. You know, we, we try to predict everything um, in, in our in our area. Um, we don't always get it right, but but we're <laughs> we always have a, a thoughtful, sophisticated model behind the scenes that's attempting to predict, you know, what's going to happen. So when you first arrived, did you did you have to reorganize finance, or was there a plan you had on on your mind? You know, I was really lucky that I inherited a really talented team. So from from a personnel standpoint, I didn't have to make many personnel changes. I didn't have to add staff or, or, or thankfully fire staff because that's never fun. But, but, you know, th there was sort of a, a culture that I wanted to change a little bit. And, and I actually remember that in the beginning drafting what I called the five guiding principles of the department. And I remember meeting with the staff. And, and, the, and the five guiding principles that, that, I, that I established, and I'll, I'll read that, you know, I'll sort of share them with you. Um, you know, the first one was we value, challenge, and reward our people. And just to expound on that a little bit, I, you know, I think the, it's just the importance of taking care of your, your staff, you know, communicating well, making sure you give them growth opportunities. That was certainly number one. Number two was we strive for zero defect results. So we, you know, as certainly in finance, your goal is to, I mean, not, not make mistakes. Everybody's human, so you do make mistakes. But when we make mistakes, we communicate them, you know, we fix them quickly and we communicate them and, and make sure we don't repeat them. Um, we're focused, number three was we were focused on the efficiency and effectiveness of our services. So that goes back to the use of technology and improving processes. You know, we've done a lot with technology, with, with our, you know, expense report system and, and, and all, all sorts of different ways that we've used technology to make things more efficient for our department. Uh, number four was we consistently exceed the expectation of our customers. I tried to instill in our department the idea that our customers are our fellow employees for the most part. And, you know, those customers, they might need information from us, they might have different needs from us, and it's our job to give them what they need um, and treat them like customers and sort of, you know, the same way that a, that a company would treat customers. And then the last one was just creating value for our ownership. I mean, overall, when I wanted to make sure that every decision we make, everything we do as a department has an eye towards either maximizing revenue, minimizing costs, but ultimately, you know, doing our best to maximizing profit. Um, so anyway, those were the five. I put them on a, a sheet, I distributed them out to the department, 
um, that was really, you know, from a culture perspective, what I what I tried to do when I started. You know, I, again, didn't have to make any personnel changes, which was great, but but tried to communicate those those guiding principles. Have they? Uh, have you felt uh, any need to add a six or or modify any of them in some way? You know, I mean, we haven't. Not really. I mean, you know, the the, the um, they've they've served us well. You know, again, the last four years, and 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 really, you know, just the the, the five words. I mean, you know, I, I read sentences, but it's really people. You know, number one, zero defects. Number two, efficiency. Number three, customers. Number four, and value. Number five, and I think that those five words are words that I encourage my staff to to, to think about, um, and and we haven't really modified them since, and and they've. They still prove to be effective in, in terms of guiding our the culture that we're that, that our department strives for. So of course, there's one book many of us have read about baseball and uh, the sort of the intersection of finance and statistics, Moneyball, um, by Michael Lewis. Uh, curious as to what lessons you might have taken away from that book or, or the situations they've described. Yeah, you know, I definitely read the book. I, I, I love the book. I, I watched the movie. Um, you know, again, as someone who just loves numbers it, and, and also loves baseball, it was a fascinating story and, and to sort of see the behind the scenes. And, you know, while I'm not directly involved in the decisions, the day-to-day -day decisions related to which players we sign, I certainly used a lot of the, the, the thought, you know, the thinking in that book or, or some of the themes in my job. And I think, you know, the, the best way I can think of it you know the idea of looking for market inefficiencies. You know, thinking outside the box. You know, you know, not following the crowd. I think one of the things that Billy Bean was was best known for is you know, and at the time back back then, you know, the concept of on base percentage versus batting average was was just not something that most general managers really understood. You know, that sort of the value of not making an out is really the most important thing. And now it's just sort of commonplace. Everybody focuses on you know on base percentage and OPS and things like that. But back then it wasn't. And I think Again, going back to the book, you know, not you know, being being creative, thinking outside the box. Of course, using data, and again, that's been my calling card in my career of just using data to help uh, support decisions or, or make decisions. Um, so it definitely was something that, that that helped shape the way that I approach my job, even if I'm not directly involved in our player decisions. Do you expect this focus on data to alter uh, the role of the finance function or make it? maybe more quickly evolve into other areas? Yeah, well, there's no question that here at the Red Sox, I would say that our department has evolved prior to my uh, being named uh, head of the department in, in the fall of 2015. It was a little bit more of a traditional finance department. You know, there was obviously, they still did a great job, the previous leadership of the department in terms of budgeting and forecasting and managing you know, the ins and outs, all the transactions that occur in the GL and, you know, APAR and just even keeping the trains running on time, so to speak. And, and that's obviously still a very important part of our job. You know, we have, you know, just like any company, we have checks and, and payments going out the door, you know, every day, hundreds if not thousands, I'm sure, uh, and, and payments coming in every day and, and sort of keeping track of all that is of critical importance. I think that when I was put in charge of the department, the integration with the data and analytics became stronger, and the link between those two departments became stronger. And I think that it has, you know, I'm biased, of course, but it has resulted, and I think, you know, it's sort of a firmer uh, foundation of, 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 you know, importance on that, on that data part of things. And that's the core business. You know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very involved 
uh, in, 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 in our plans to sell tickets. You know, I, 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 I talked to our head of marketing and head of ticketing every day. Um, you know, our previous CFO might not have been as involved. He, he, again, did not, not to be critical. He was focused on, you know, the finance, the core finance responsibilities and did those, did those well. Um, but, but I, but I think I see my job as a little bit larger, um, in terms of really making sure that the, that the, the Red Sox maximize revenues, maximize our ticket sales and, and using data to do that is, has, has always been, you know, part of one of my priorities. Some of what you have shared, I think, strongly underscores uh, a direction that uh, many of our discussions are pointing. For instance, your comments about working more closely with sales is really interesting. A lot of finance leaders struggle to collaborate with different parts of the organization today, including sales. Um, and maybe you found it easier to do because of your unique history within the organization. Um, or maybe you, you hit upon some interesting approaches that allowed you to have those types of conversations. If you're, if you're having that conversation every day and people aren't looking around saying, why is Tim here again? Um, you know, you're, you're sort of blazing a new path uh, in, in my way of thinking. But how, do you, how did you accomplish that where you're part of the daily discussion? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm the first thing I would say is I'm fortunate that I've been here since 2003, and I'm also fortunate that most of our executive leadership team has been here for a similar amount of time. So our head of mark, our chief marketing officer, actually started before me. He started in 2002. Our, our head of ticketing, uh, similar, started in 2002. Our chief strategy officer, I think, eight or nine years. Our COO, 16 years. Our head of sponsorship, 18 years. So we've been really fortunate that our senior management team has had an incredible amount of continuity um, where, we, where people really haven't left, I think the, the shortest amount of tenure is probably seven or eight years. So what that has created is the ability to us to just you know, create relationships where we've worked together for so long and we respect each other so much that we, that we, you know, we, we enjoy working with each other, we enjoy ch solving problems together, we enjoy the challenges that we face. And, um, and you know, just over time, I've building relationships within the organization has also been something that I've, that's been really important to me. You know, I've, I've ever since day one, I felt like I wanted to, you know, establish relationships with people across all departments. That was always something I did. Even as an intern, I did that, um, you know, because I thought it was important. And I think that I've, I've been able to benefit from, from establishing those relationships across multiple departments and, and, you know, those relationships growing over time and becoming stronger and, and just, just fostering a, a collaborative spirit uh, as well. Okay. Well, we have what we call a signature question where I ask for a finance strategic moment. And this might have happened in your CFO chapter. It might have happened earlier. Uh, but it's where your lines of sight into the organization saw an opportunity or a risk, and uh, you responded to it. You might have directed your team in a different direction. You might have decided that it just wasn't worth pursuing a certain opportunity, whatever it might have been. Does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I do recall an aha moment way back in the beginning. So I remember as a, as a summer intern, so I was, I was, you know, 2003, I'd spent a couple years at Bain, and I was sort of just learning my way around the organization. And I was really shocked at the limited use of data at the time. And I'll give you an example. So I remember asking the fan services department, you know, I was sort of trying to understand, they get, they got emails and letters and phone calls from fans every day and they had 10 or 12 people that just all they did all day was respond to these fan inquiries. And I remember saying, well, what, what do you do with those letters afterwards? You know, what do you, they, oh, we just put them in that filing cabinet, you know, and, 
and I said, well, what happens when the filing cabinet fills up? And he said, well, we just, we just put them in offsite storage. And I said, there's no database where you track, like, you know, did I respond to this? What was the category? You know, you know, and what was the follow-up? And I said, wouldn't there, wouldn't it make sense to have a database? You could, you could, you know, analyze what the, what, you know, okay, so we had a hundred uh, inbound inquiries this year, there's this week, 20% of them were related to food quality and 20% of them were related to the Nomar Garcia Parra trade or whatever. And they were just like, database, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I remember just sort of thinking, and I, and I, one of the things I did that summer was create a database to, to exactly to track, uh, you know, just, just to track those ideas and, and access. And people were, I think, you know, like, oh, this is great. Now I can run reports and, you know, Larry can know what, what are fans asking about this week versus last week and how are we doing on responses and what's our average response time or follow-up time or whatever. And that was one example. I'll give one other example of that same summer. I remember walking around Fenway Park and, and I was just studying the number of turnstiles that we had at each gate. You know, so we had 10 turnstiles at gate A and we had five turnstiles at gates B, C, D, and E. And I was walking around and I saw these really long lines at gate A and there were no lines at gate B. And I, and I, I asked, what I usually do is I went and asked for data. I went and asked the ticket office, can you give me the turnstile counts for the last three years and by gate, you know, and then I put them all on the spreadsheet and I created these charts that suggested that you know, more than 50% of our fans go through gate A and it's very consistent. You know, we should have 17 turnstiles at gate A and we should only have two at gate B. And I remember people thinking, 17 turnstiles, that's crazy. And I said, trust me, like you want to have the right number of turnstiles that align with the number of fans that are coming in, you know, th that allows you to have the shortest average lines. And sure enough, I made this presentation and I remember, you know, convincing them to use the turnstiles. So again, going back to my very first summer, I, I would say my strategic moment or my aha moment was just, you know, convincing the organization, and I don't want to take too much credit for this, but, you know, just at, they just didn't at the time have this, have someone in the organization at the time. They had plenty of people on the ba baseball side. You know, Theo Epstein had plenty of analysts and did a great job on the baseball side, but on the business side, they didn't at the time have a lot of people that were using data to, to, to make uh, business decisions and make businesses more efficient, and I was able to do that early on and, and, and made that part of my like my role throughout throughout the last 18 years. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With US Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers at every opportunity has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for five years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com slash middle market. Hello, we're back with CFO Tim Zhu, and we are entering the mentoring round where we like to kick things off with this question. What is it that's exciting you about finance and business today? You know, I mean, I'd have to say probably the first thing that comes to mind is just is just the use of technology to continue to innovate and improve efficiencies of our processes. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, you know, over over the last five, ten years, we've really tried to, um, you know, use technology to, to make sure that our employees are, are spending 
the, their valuable time in the best possible way. You know, for example, we used to do expense reports in, uh, using Microsoft Excel. There was a variety of issues with that, as you can imagine. We now use Concur, and it's, and it's so much easier. You can take pictures of receipts with your phone, et cetera. You know, we used to have, it, this is crazy to think, employees, DFA employees would sign in on a, on a sign-in sheet. They literally <laughs> would sign their name on a piece of paper. We'd have somebody enter the enter the, the in and out times and a spreadsheet. You know, that now we obviously have an, an app on, the, the, an usher shows up for work, and he pulls out his mobile phone, and he, and he signs in. You know, he checks in on his phone, and, 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 and that's in another example. So I think that, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to use technology to make processes more efficient, which, again, allows our employees to, to free their time up for, for what their actual core responsibilities are. So that's probably the, the thing that excites me the most, is looking for more opportunities to improve our processes with technology. Earlier, you shared those, those five principles with us, and I'm curious – uh, so, so you had given a good deal of thought when you first arrived in the CFO office, but we do always ask this question. There had to have been some piece of information you wish you had, and if you had the opportunity to maybe whisper in your own ear today during that first 30 days as the CFO, what would you have told yourself? You know, I think one thing I've learned over the last four years is the importance of communicating often with your superiors, and, and certainly my boss, Sam Kennedy, we talk multiple times every day, and, uh, and even you know with John Henry and Tom Werner, whether it's either phone or email, but, but more importantly, especially if you have bad news. So, you know, occasionally, you know, you'll have, you'll have something will come up and you'll go, uh-oh, this, you know, this, this, this wasn't expected, or this, you know, and the impulse maybe might be, all right, well, let's figure out how to clean this up. Let's maybe maybe there's a way that we can fix this and 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 you know wait a couple days or you know just you know uh, you know not communicate that that news right away and i think what i've learned is it's best to just you get you know bad news comes in the sooner i can get it to sam the better cuz he doesn't like to be surprised with uh, with bad news and i think that you know it's 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 you know look again things happen in every organization um, that that are unanticipated or and, and I think the communication and, and certainly learning from those mistakes and, and then and, uh, is, is important. So I would say, again, you know, communicating often and quickly when, when – when You have a personal habit or routine you believe has contributed to your professional success? You know, I think that one thing that I think I've been fortunate is to be surrounded by incredibly talented people. My vice president of finance, Ryan Aramis, he is he is a star, and you know he he I would be lost without him. He he's 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 literally my phone a friend. You know, whenever I have a question about something, I call him. Um, I, my head of business analytics, John Hay, another superstar. And I think that one habit or routine is just for people, and, and I have stars across my 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 departments. I, I named the two of them, um, but really everybody. I'm really fortunate to have really really great people. And I think the importance of taking care of those people, being proactive about ensuring getting ahead of their, you know, potential desire to do more things. You know, one of the hardest things to do is is keep people happy, right? Everybody, you know, er, people are ambitious and motivated. They want to do more. They want raises. They want promotions. And you can't promote and give everybody raises every single year. You just can't do it. So I think that you know, I've I've made it really an important priority to spend time with my staff to make sure that, again, I'm proactive, thinking about new opportunities for people. When I took over, um, I, I, ma I made it a point to have lunch with every single person in my department, you know, and I said in those lunches, 
I said, you know, I want to keep an open line of communication and we can't have lunch every week, but anytime you want to talk, anytime you want to meet, uh, my door is wide open, please come see me. And I think that I've tried to stress the importance of, you know, keeping that direct line with staff, even, even as my direct reports have grown. And, you know, I oversee not, you know, about, you know, maybe 40 or so people now. I used to be five and it was easier to, to keep communication open and with 40 it's harder, but it doesn't mean that I, um, so again, going back to sort of the, or, or, the, or just really keeping communication open with, with employees and taking care of the best and brightest and ensuring that you stay ahead of their potential, um, you know, uh, di di uh, dissatisfaction and make sure that they're always happy. And, and I've been lucky to be able to do that. I, I mentioned I wanted to just touch uh, back on your career. I'm wondering, uh, as you look back now, how you feel the time you spent in the classroom influenced either your leadership, your mindset. You just discussed how you met with every member of the team personally, it seems like. Um, so what, what would you tell us? That time you spent in the classroom, how did that change your, perhaps your mindset as a business leader? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that you know, this is cliche, but the, you know, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man a fish, he eats for a lifetime. I do think that I've attempted in my career to take advantage of opportunities to teach people, um, you know, pass along responsibilities um, and, 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 you know, teach them how to do certain things because everybody likes to learn new things. You know, th th every single person on the world, I think, likes to learn new things. So that teaching component, I've never lost that desire to share maybe knowledge that I have or share skills that I might have developed with other people and, 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 and teach them how to do things. And, and so, you know, I would say that just that core foundational principle of, you know, trying to, um, you know, teach people um, has, has stayed with me throughout my career. And I've attempted, and again, it's not, it's not always easy with, with the constraints on time, but I've attempted to try to do that with my staff as much as possible. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? You know, the book I'm reading right now is actually um, it's called Shoe Dog. It's a biography of Phil Knight. Um, and I, I sort of tend to like uh, biographies about um, people like Phil Knight. I also like the, uh, the Steve Jobs biography. You know, I think it's just fascinating to hear how a company like Nike was born. Um, it, you know, it, there's some incredible stories in there. I had no idea that Phil Knight, um, you know, in the early days of Nike, really for several, several years, Nike was a company that was, you know, had, had growth in sales, but was living paycheck to paycheck and was living on the float. And he took some risks, um, you know, from a finance perspective in terms of, of, you know, money he was loaning from banks and just, but more importantly, I think there's so many great lessons in books like that, where you can see, you know, someone like Phil Knight, who's, who's clearly just such a, been such a success and Nike, this en enormous company, but to, but to, but to understand where, how that company was born from from nothing you know from out of his house out of his uh, out of his parents you know guest bedroom uh, into what it was it, it's been fascinating I'm, I'm not quite done with it yet I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of it but but that book shoe dog um, is great and, and I think in general I like I like to read books about successful people like that Steve Jobs shoe dog uh, I'm sorry Phil Knight um, you know and and just how those companies were born and and what principles and lessons those those you know successful leaders used in their own uh, growth of their own companies. Um, I remember Steve Jobs in that book, you know, there was, a, there was a portion about him, the importance of simplicity, you know, keeping things simple. He was talking about the 
computer market, and he said, "Look, we've got laptops and desktops, and we've got, um, you know, and we've got personal and business, and that's basically it. You know, that you don't need to have 25 different models." Um, and, and so the idea of simplicity is another one. So anyway, I think that's my um, favorite thing to do usually when I read is, um, is, is biographies of people like that. Yeah, great choice. We haven't had that one before, so I know it'll be uh, uh, well-received. We're up to our final question, but I do want to point out. I know you're participating uh, next month in the MIT Sloan CFO Summit. Will you be speaking, or are you uh, perhaps participating on a panel, or what are you up to? Yeah, yeah, I'm on a panel. Um, I think it's in the afternoon. It's actually, ironically, the, the title of the panel is sort of about Moneyball, or it has Moneyball in the title. And so I'm, I'm going to be joined by a few other CFOs from other local companies. And just, again, you know, sharing a lot of the things I shared in this podcast about the use of data, um, how how the position has how finance has evolved and 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 um, in terms of data. So it's a Moneyball panel, um, and uh, I think it's in the afternoon. And I look forward to participating. Outstanding! It'll be a great opportunity to connect. We are up to our final question, where I get to ask you to look forward, Tim, and share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. What's got to get done? Your priorities. Well, you know, for for the Red Sox fans out there, they probably know that we're going to have, you know, we're 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 going to have an interesting offseason. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got some questions. Um, we've got various decisions to make on the player side. Um, some some decisions that, that aren't our own decisions. You know, someone like J.D. Martinez has he has a, a, an opportunity to either opt out of his contract or not. So we'll have to see what happens with that. And depending on that decision and other decisions. You know, we also are, are currently uh, searching for our next president of baseball operations um, as, as Dave, after Dave Dombrowski's departure. And so, you know, once we have that person in place, I think that, you know, one of the things that I will want to do in the short term is, is you know, get to know that, that new leader, assuming, um, you know, w if, we, if we go outside the organization. Because I, I will work, you know, with that, with that leader in, 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 in some respects, not directly, but indirectly, um, again, on, on, on collaboration. Um, and then I think just, you know, doing what we do every year, which is, you know, um, ensuring that we, that we work hard to, to, pr to, to provide the best possible experience at Fenway Park, that we provide our fans the best, you know, um, the best quality experience, and, and, and ultimately build a team that the fans um, are, are proud to support. And, and you know, from, from, from you know, more, more nuance or more detailed into the department, it's, again, the same priorities I've talked about before. Ensuring that my staff are, is happy, that's number one on my list every day. I want to make sure that my staff remains happy and motivated because I don't want any of them to, to want to leave because they're dissatisfied. Um, and, and again, you know, going back to the themes I've mentioned before, just, just continuing to improve our processes. You know, every, every year I want to have two or three examples of things that we've done with, with technology to improve our processes. Tim Zhu, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thought Leader listeners, whether you've already ascended into the ranks of finance leaders, or have only just begun the journey. Your professional narrative needs a reboot. Join our email list at cfothoughtleader.com and receive my latest email series, Finance and the Power of Narrative. It's time to mobilize the past to achieve your goals. Thank you for listening.